Good afternoon. It's Friday the 27th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today are Patrick Henningsen and myself, Brian Gerrish. Patrick, uh, delighted to see you in the studio. Great to be with you, Brian. Okay. Well, there's so much happening. It's difficult to know where to start, but we decided today we'd start by having a look at uh, what's happening over the pond in America. You know, so everybody wants to know what's going on uh, with the US elections. Uh, is Donald Trump conceding? Is he throwing in the towel? So let's just take, take a quick look and update on, on that situation. So uh, the big question is, uh, does Donald Trump have a path forward uh, to victory? Uh, or is this just a case of he's got to throw in the towel right now? They've already earlier in the week ascertained the election. The General Services Office has said uh, they can start releasing money to the Biden transition team. So yep. that sort of bit of the process has already been green lighted. Uh, but Trump is still fighting in the courts. There's still a number of legal challenges yep. in a number of these key swing states. Of course, none of that being reported in UK at the moment. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Not even in the US, by the way. Only a couple of networks are even bothering to cover any of this. Let's just take a look real quickly, a quick summary of where we're at in terms of the legal challenges uh, right here. So the first uh, the first one, the big one, of course, is, is Pennsylvania, uh, Brian. So this is just hot off the press here. The judge has halted the election certification in Pennsylvania because of a hearing that's happening today on Friday regarding uh, voter fraud, election fraud, really to do with mail-in ballot fraud. Uh, so that's happening in Pennsylvania. And let's just look at uh, what, what Donald Trump himself has said. This is just off the wires uh, this morning here. Look at this. This is what Trump said. This is big. Uh, he's being, saying that it's going to be very, a very hard thing to concede. He's talking about if the Electoral College elects Joe Biden on December 14th. And he continues to say uh, on this, uh, we just go back to that slide. He continues to say if they do, uh, it will be you know, a big mistake, basically. Uh, right. And he continues to say, we'll just look at uh, what he says here. It's going to be tough to concede. Also, he's saying here that uh, this was a massive fraud. Uh, and on the U.S. voting and election systems, he's saying that we are like a third world country. So uh, just a quick uh, recap here. These are the main legal challenges here to look at. Pennsylvania, obviously, we mentioned before. Georgia, there's a number of cases been filed in Georgia just in the last couple of days. Uh, and here in Michigan, these three key swing states. There's other legal challenges in Nevada, I believe in Arizona, uh, a number of other states. But those are the main ones uh, that we're looking at this week. So this is where yeah. the most amount of evidence is, uh, according to Trump's legal team, that that's their best chance, really. And if of, of showing the corruption in the electoral system. Showing uh, widespread uh, election yeah. fraud, or really targeted election fraud. This is a bit, a bit of a misnomer in the media. They're, they kept saying from the beginning, there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. But really, this wasn't about widespread voter fraud as such. It was really about targeted. Uh, voter fraud, targeted election yeah. fraud in key swing states. So again, the media has uh, distorted the whole conversation by saying, because there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud immediately, yeah. even before the court cases have been heard, they're saying dismiss the whole thing, move on, Biden's president, nothing to see here. Yeah. So. What's your opinion? Um, you are an American, you're obviously watching very closely what's happening over there in the States. Uh, we're getting a rather gray message at the moment as to how Trump's doing? Has he really got a chance of, of uh, turning this one around and overcoming the, the fraud and everything that's been lined up against him? Um, I think in an ideal world, you would say, yes, due process would allow it to do its thing through the courts, through the process and so forth. But what, what the big fear, Brian, is and what everybody is beginning to understand is that this deadline of December 14th or around that yeah. when the Electoral College is meant to go and electors are meant to cast their votes, that if anything goes past that, they'll literally be calling to burn him at the stake yeah. at that point. So it's like the, the, this is the problem with America and people are realizing that America is like a, a giant organized crime syndicate in this sense, and you have the entire media against the yeah. candidate. They won't cover any of the evidence or legal challenges. They've written him off. They're saying, get out of office and so forth, and yeah. you're, you're, you're the next Hitler. And so, so that's 
really, you, you can't really get a fair hearing uh, in the court of public opinion, and that does affect how the judiciary is going to uh, rule, because as you know, when the judges are sitting and hearing these cases, yep. they're wondering what's going on outside the courtrooms, because that's going to also influence whether they think they can brush this get one away off. With stuff, yeah. So will it go to, up to the Supreme Court? That remains to be seen. They may not have enough time. I think my honest opinion, Brian, is that he might not be able to win this challenge in time, the clock might run out. Yeah, he might have to concede, and but he does want to prove there was election fraud, and I I think it's pretty clear by reading the affidavits and the amount of evidence that he will prove yeah. that and build a, a populist movement uh, in the next four years, possibly right. to challenge again or to help bring in new candidates and other uh, similar populist candidates to transform the right. Republican Party. So that's. I, again, we, we, I can't say for sure. He does have a shot, but it's, it's very slim. Okay, well, we'll see how that develops, but it's gonna have impact on this country. It's already having an impact on things happening in the EU and the subject of defense has come into that, but more on that UK column next week. So the BBC is uh, in the news, uh, Brian, uh, the next, next story we wanted to show, uh, but maybe for all the wrong reasons, let's take a look at uh, this headline here. Uh, this is, I uh, believe, from Guido Fox. So Ofcom uh, has uh, pointed out here that the BBC hit falls to last place among the viewers in terms of impartiality ratings here. And as you can see, there's the dear leader uh, in one of the coronavirus briefings. So this is how it shapes up, Brian, in terms of the league tables now. You can see skies right there at the top. Uh, BBC all the way down at the bottom. Let's take a quick look at Sky. They've improved their confidence share in the public, Brian, Sky News, uh, they're plus 5% uh, from previous polls. Channel 4 is next, and uh, there's ITV News. And look at that, in fourth place, Channel 5. Do you know anybody who watches Channel 5? Uh, not many. <laughs> <laughs> but here, bringing yeah. up the rear, bringing up the rear is the BBC. Uh, at fi only 58% of the country polled uh, believe they are impartial. So this is a huge collapse uh, in terms of of public confidence so, here. So we've got a damaged brand for the BBC. This is the real good news, that once once your brand is damaged, you are in big trouble, and that that is damage of the brand, surely. There's no way they can, can rebuild that, and, and this yeah. is what uh, Guido Fox just finished off with this comment here, Brian's Ofcom's warning that the viewer-broadcaster relationship could be jeopardized if this current state of affairs continues, but what you just told me, Brian, is that it's already beyond the pale by this point. I think it is, which is which is uh, brilliant, but I'm smiling because, of course, the moment we go to Ofcom, it's been UK column that's demonstrated people inside Ofcom making all the critical decisions of themselves, ex-BBC, and many of them drawing pensions with spouses also drawing uh, BBC pensions. So Ofcom itself, of course, is a damaged brand because it is part of the BBC. It'd be interesting to watch how this develops but people say to us please give us more good news and i think you've just given us some well it's interesting it really reflects what's what's already going on i think it's quite underestimated actually that poll i think it's probably far worse worse yeah in okay. fact so uh, bad news for the bbc we'll come back to the uh the, the networks uh, a little bit later but uh so so this was th this is thanksgiving weekend uh, in America, yeah, and so this is the the national holiday, secular holiday. It's meant to be uh, an all-inclusive kind of celebration, Thanksgiving, and so uh, Silicon Valley though uh, celebrated it a little bit different. Uh, Thanksgiving, which was yesterday. Here's what uh, Google and YouTube uh, came out with, Brian here, and what they're saying is something different. They're saying this is today is un-Thanksgiving. Day. And they're basically saying for indigenous and Native Americans, the fourth Thursday of November is dedicated to indigenous history, activism, and resistance. Right. That's the key, resistance. So it's called Unthanksgiving Day. So formerly inclusive holiday to help bring people together under yeah. one common banner uh, is being attacked by Silicon Valley with millions. Well, million, Thanksgiving yeah. is, is part of America, isn't it? It's what families come together for. It's over here, people hear about Thanksgiving, but they don't really um, necessarily think that this is a major event for American families, people coming together, sharing the, the food and the, the ambience of being together. So this is what America is about, and it's giving thanks to God. 
So we're going to not give thanks to God. There's a pretty important message coming out here. And not come together. And of course, yeah. this is this is at a time when there's lockdown and there's our, the disruption with COVID restrictions on families gathering in some yeah. places. So it's already a divisive atmosphere. And there's Silicon Valley with their unlimited budget in terms of public relations and social engineering. And they're really sticking it in there. But let's just take a quick look at their, their campaign here. And this is the next one here. It's about acknowledging, educating, and honoring uh, Native Americans. And you know, I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's a, a fantastic endeavor, but they're, they're framing it in a, in a certain way, Brian. Unthanksgiving is very divisive, yes. this campaign. And here we go a bit more uh, on that front here. They're saying, for generations, Native Americans and indigenous persons have shared their experiences using unthanksgiving uh, as an opportunity for intergenerational, intercultural dialogue. So mixed messaging again. Yeah, I, I think this is to do with intersectionality that we started to talk about on UK Column. I've got a little more on it later in the news, but this is not just an idle produce a few images talking about this stuff. This is my opinion planned and this is designed to further disrupt American society, isn't it? Is it pitting one person against the other? It, it is, and it's not just in America. This is a global campaign, by the way, which we'll show you in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and they continue on here. This is the next uh, part of their campaign, uh, basically talking about you know understanding the land you're living on and so forth. So th there is an attempt here uh, to reframe history, and their target is really the younger generation. Uh, so, you know, Thanksgiving's based on this, uh, you know, idea of the pilgrims came from Europe and uh, after the first long winter where half of the uh, pilgrims died uh, because of starvation and yeah. disease and whatnot, and they got together and had a meal, signed a peace treaty with the Indians and so forth. Now, this has been reframed as uh, a day of mourning for Native Americans, really by activists. Uh, and so Plymouth is involved in this. Uh, as well, this city of Plymouth, yes, of course, I'll, I'll yeah. show you in a minute. Yeah. Uh, so, and again, just to, to wrap it up uh, on this campaign here. So they're really talking about, you know, uh, indigenous heritage and using unthanksgiving to reflect on uh, indigenous heritage. I might add that uh, Google and, uh, and YouTube's head offices are probably located on, quote, stolen Native American lands. Well, that would be tragic. Perhaps we could ask viewers to do a bit of research into that. I think it, I think it it's is. worth doing. So they should maybe have to vacate their offices uh, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, make a, a good gesture to the uh, tribes of California and give but that... Land back. Give that land back and maybe give them a few billion dollars as well. Yeah, that's probably a hashtag, isn't it? Google, give the land back. So they're running these PR campaigns, but they're, uh, what are they actually doing for Native Americans, uh, these are really targeting white, middle class, uh, fairly yeah. better than average, uh, and, and youth as well. This is what they're targeting. There's, there's very little, I think, that's gonna be done. They're saying we're raising awareness, but you know the, the, the poverty level on Native American reservations uh, in the United States is really bad. Yeah. And there's systemic problems there that go for decades. And those are not being addressed in this campaign. No, so what's the agenda of the campaign? It's to do something different. It's to create this conflict. It's the campaign's a tool. It's attack on traditions. It's attack on uh, traditional values, attack on narratives. Yeah. Uh, and it's designed to reframe. Uh, clearly, it's, this is a bit of applied behavioral psychology. So how does this affect the city of Plymouth? Well, uh, this is also what, uh, th this is the, uh, exhibition, if you will, they're calling it an exhibition, No New Worlds. Uh, this is what's happening out on Plymouth Sound. This was erected in, I believe, the end of August, and this supposedly they're taking it down today. Uh, and this has been up for like three months, Brian. This is a giant kind of LED, they're calling it an art installation, and it's saying that the message is No New Worlds. So yeah. they're timing it with the uh, 400th anniversary of the Mayflower, uh, Mayflower yeah. 400. So they, while they're celebrating Mayflower 400, they're doing this kind of divisive attack on the historical narrative, basically saying that it wasn't a new world uh, because their Native Americans were already there and it was a great tragedy that the Europeans arrived. So this is what this whole, quote, art installation uh, is for. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, go to the breakwater. Yeah, no, I, I have seen it and it's, it's pretty... Um crass is the word I think I'd use. It's, it's just unpleasant. The whole structure's unpleasant. 
And uh, once I understood what the message was, I found that unpleasant as well. But again, this is a political agenda that suddenly appears mm -hmm. put in front of the, the uh, people of Plymouth. Um, I don't remember seeing any advance notice of planning permission. Um, it just appeared. Oh, but, we'll mention that in okay. a second. But um, it is kind of a monstrosity in a sense. I mean, a lot of residents the, that I spoke to uh, didn't like it, didn't care for it. A lot of people had no comment. I spoke to some people uh, down there on the breakwater in Mountbatten, but it's just a giant scaffolding, not not a very good-looking uh, structure. And uh, there's, a, you know, people didn't have time to complain about it, as you say, because there was no planning permission submitted. It, it managed to bypass that whole process, yeah. which is an amazing thing in itself. Let me take a closer look here. This is what the structure looks like close up here. It's a whole array of these. LEDs that form the letters of no new world. So the message is there was no new world. Uh, we need to reframe this generation and we need to sort of really promote the idea of guilt uh, for, for the sins, the past sins of colonial sins and so forth. This is what yeah. this project is about. So a message that, that was part of the, the um, fabric of the city of Plymouth. People in Plymouth felt proud of their links through to the new world in America somebody's at work here to chip away at that and reduce that positive message to something that's you know, sort of um, depressing and you should you should be upset that you were involved in this this is this is very cynical psychology at work here yeah. all approved of course by Plymouth City Council and during lockdown you know during this it, people it, yeah. are already under assault and everyone's walking that that sort of uh, route uh, all around the sound and they have to be sort of bombarded with no, yeah. no, you know, no new worlds, no world, no, and they mix up yeah. the the, uh, the combinations of the words. So, uh, and even at night, Brian, as well, you know, this is what you'll see uh, at night here. You know, it's, it's Las Vegas of, you know, culture wars, culture wars, Las Vegas, 24 hours a day for the last three, three months. Yeah. And uh, it's absolutely incredible. So would, would, would I be unfair to say that what we're actually looking here is a direct insult to the American people from Plymouth? It's, it's, no, what it's, it's, it's trying to reframe history, basically, and, yeah. and make it into sort of a, a tragedy that the Europeans uh, came from, from Europe to, to North America. But it's kind of ridiculous in a sense, Brian, because to Europeans, it was the new world. You can't change that. That was their reality then. But what they're doing is retrospectively trying to rewrite history to suit a 2020 uh, social justice lens, yeah. basically. So it, this is just pure reframing and, I don't know, it's culture wars, but really weaponized with funding from the Arts Council. Yeah, under the cover of COVID. Well, it seems to be. It seems yeah. to be. So, But we did some research, Brian, and it didn't take long to find out there's all is not well with this art project here. Uh, they basically did not put in planning permission until after they built it and put it up. So this is uh, Plymouth here. So this is absolutely incredible. And uh, this is another view here from the Ho. Let's just look at what some of the objectors have said here. The sound is a natural beauty spot. There is no need to put uh, a man-made structures all over it. This is one resident here. Someone else is saying uh, the installation was extremely ugly and mars the natural beauty of Plymouth Sound. I, I agree with that. I think yeah. a lot of people would. And here, the work structure uh, should not have commenced on, on without receiving planning permission. Uh, this attitude rides roughshod over the correct processes that are in place. So the question is, Brian, you know, why did they do that? And I think it's pretty clear uh, if they had submitted planning permission for this yeah. monstrosity of a, quote, art exhibition, it would have been rejected by a lot of residents for the yeah. reasons, not over structural reasons, but because of the the, the kind of messaging, the, you could call it propaganda, I don't know. Well, it's, a poli it's political messaging, yeah. isn't it? So, so we've, we've thrown the law aside in order to get this political message out in this sign. We're going to come back to that a bit later in the news in that we've got a, another planning uh, uh, type issue going on in Plymouth where the same thing's happening. So Politics yeah. is interfering with the law. They bypass the due process in order to push yeah. the agenda out. Yeah. So it's, it's absolutely incredible. And just finally, let's just take a look here. Uh, these are the, uh, the artists, if you will. This is called Project Speedwell, ironically. I'll tell you why in a minute. But this is uh, Leonie Hampton, Laura Hopes, and Martin Hampton. 
I believe they're brothers and sisters, those two. And they're, they're the brains behind this, apparently. But Speedwell is, is interesting because that was the, the sister ship of the Mayflower. But, like, uh, but Speedwell was full of holes and didn't quite make the journey uh, because it was a, a wreck, basically. So it's ironic that they named their project, which also has a lot of holes in its narrative, Project Speedwell here. And uh, here's, what we're, here's what they're saying. The, the work will be switched off on this 26th of November, which coincides with Thanksgiving, also known as the Day of Mourning amongst indigenous North Americans. Wow. And that's misleading because most Native American tribes uh, don't really have much to do with what's going on on this tip of New England. Only the uh, Wapanoag tribe is specifically what they're talking about. But a lot of the driving of this is by activists many of them who aren't Native American. Yeah. So, and if you spent time on, on multiple reservations around the country, which, you know, I have, yeah. uh, and reported and interviewed uh, various uh, tribal authorities and so forth, you'll know that this isn't at the top of their list. Rewriting history is not necessarily at the top of their list. They have problems and concerns today. Yeah. And I wonder if any of these artists have ever visited any of these tribes and actually know what their day-to-day problems and issues are, even the cultural language issues as well. Right. But the underlying message here, just, just to, to, well, we're, we're putting this out today because we think it's very important. What are we looking at here? We're looking at a political message which is being forced on the people of, of Plymouth and a much wider audience. This is a political agenda, but it's being done in this very underhand way. And of course, we're seeing this coming straight out from the British government via Boris Johnson's behavioural insights team, which is boasting it can change the way people think and behave due to applied psychology. This is applied psychology. That's right. And just to, to prove what you just said, here is the Mayflower 400's website. And what does it say, Brian? Thanksgiving reinformed. I think what they really mean it's is ref <laughs> reframed. Is reframed, reframed. Yeah, is there? And uh, someone uh, sent me this uh, mem here, which I find is quite instructive. This is uh, Plymouth Rock in 1620, and they're saying the the Indians are saying you came here illegally, and the Pilgrims are saying no, it's legal, bruv. Borders are inhumane, and the Pilgrims are saying down with the fascist native state. Open borders, say the Europeans. So it, it's kind of a play on the the political argument uh, from yeah. the, mainly from the left that's happening yeah. today about the issue of borders and nation states. Well, somebody in the, uh, the chat box has uh, said that what we're looking at is cultural subversion. I'm gonna agree with them. This is uh, malicious use of applied psychology to get a political agenda across. And of course, what are we demonstrating? That's something we should genuinely be happy about and celebrating the relationship between uh, UK and America and between Plymouth and the, the New World on the Eastern Seaboard. No, we mustn't enjoy that. So that's got to be crushed. That's what's happening here, isn't it? The, the truth is, Brian, I, um, I, I know people who are intermarried, uh, you know, Europeans and Native yeah. Americans, and they're celebrating, they celebrated Thanksgiving together yesterday. Of course, yeah. yeah Norton, I think that's a normal uh, yeah. in the United States, but this is kind of a European culture wars kind of attack uh, trying to basically, I think, virtue signal, yeah. uh, virtue signal to whatever their political constituency is, and to show that they're, you know, it's part of the great reset in, in a sense. Yeah. But they they brought in a lot of school children to write little messages on plates, and they they tied them all around the scaffolding. So they really worked hard to get hundreds of of young school children to get at those young minds to start twisting those young minds before they even on. knew. They don't even know what they're participating in. Yeah, and that's very cynical, and that's one of the I think the most sort of underhanded uh, parts of this type of uh, aggressive uh, political uh, reframing exercise. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on to the subject of. Uh, vaccines and the NHS and I've been stunned at the amount of response I've had to the letter that we put out on Wednesday saying that the NHS was now contacting I said people over 65 to get a vaccination and clearly that's uh, hit a note with many people so let's have a look at some of these emails that have come in uh, I've got this one here so um, Paul, you are eligible for a flu vaccination we're waiting for delivery and you'll be connected um, to book in when the clinics are available. Please do not contact the practice at the moment to make an appointment. If you wish to decline, text so-and-so. So all highly 
automated people getting this but the person pointed out to me that they're only 53 years old so this is not just a message that's coming out to over 65s it's coming out to people who are younger and of course many of the younger people they will have been deemed to have been in the at-risk category needing to shield which is why i would guess that some of these messages coming through now this one was very detailed i've put it in in the image in full so people can uh, freeze the screen and have a look at it but the key part of it is this in february 2014 i along with my husband who died earlier this year completed and each signed um, the person says a dissent i think they're talking about the opt-out form saying we did not want our personal details regarding healthcare passed on to a third party and in the tail of the email they then come to the conclusion that despite saying they didn't want their data passed on i suspect our data is being given to outside agencies via the nhs quangos so people here getting very concerned that the nhs seems to be running amok with our personal data uh, but we've got more let's have a look at this one here so we've got uh, dear brian i received um, the exact letter so this is the same one that we showed on wednesday the exact letter from my local primary nhs they're being sent out to anyone over 65 who's not yet had the flu shot. This is information, sorry, this information must have been provided by GPs. Considering I opted out of the NHS database years ago, they must be criminal as per the Data Protection Act. So people picking up on the fact that we're now seeing the state running roughshod over its own data protection laws. Uh, but we've got a bit more. Let's have a look at this one here. Um, I've just been watching the UK column from November the 25th. Brian is talking about flu vaccination letters being sent to over 65s. I just wanted to let the UK column know that it's not correct. I'm 57 years old, lucky you, and received that exact letter three weeks ago from my surgery in Kent. I called my surgery asking for a list of what's in the vaccine and I requested they post me a hard copy. After five phone calls to remind them, they eventually sent it and uh, what have we got here when i requested the list of ingredients i asked if the covid vaccine with nanoparticles had been combined with what my surgery called the new flu vaccine i was told that they couldn't guarantee it but they didn't didn't think so so they're not even sure what they're <laughs> going to give you right. and uh, it ends up i will no doubt be receiving a reminder soon and information telling me i need the covid vaccine uh, because just after the current lockdown started i received a letter from the government's department of health and social care which contained new important advice for me about guidance for clinically extremely vulnerable people so if you if you've got a medical need the government's going to lock you up um, and it's going to say you must have a vaccine that's clearly what's coming and uh, this one that came in as an email i think this might even be classed as harassment because this stuff is now coming through on people's phones and if you get one of these it's it's okay perhaps if you get two it starts to get annoying but people are having a repeat of these even when they're trying to uh, text back to say please don't send me any more so i think uh, pat what we can see is a pretty aggressive policy for the government to get people to have those vaccines it's an aggressive marketing policy uh, by the government uh, on behalf of the of the pharmaceutical industry yeah uh, because I mean let's be honest uh, the flu the flu jab hasn't been a, a great success has it over the last two decades medically in terms of efficacy and it hasn't sort of you know given us zero flu if you consider the amount of people who've taken it and the amount yeah. of money they pushed marketing it and subsidizing it uh, it's been a total failure so what makes you think the COVID vaccine uh, is going to be some outstanding success. well we're supposed to just trust them and we're going to come on to that we should just trust them they say uh, that the vaccine's safe they say it works they want indemnity and in indemnity in case it doesn't work but we should just trust them who are the people we should trust well let's come back to this lady that we showed on wednesday dr nikki kanani and i'm going to say um, a gentleman quite rightly pointed out I had trouble with one of the names on Wednesday's news so I'm going to make sure I work harder on people's names although I do have a little bit of a problem pronoun pronouncing some of them and I smile because 
I've lived in this country for a great many years and nobody pronounces my surname correctly, but there we go. Um, so um, the lady we reported on, thank you very much to the viewer who said, well, actually she had to apologize a little while ago. So in April, she had to apologize to GPs over the way the NHS had handled identifying patients who needed to shield. So we've seen those emails coming in today, uh, Patrick, where people are saying, well, what's going on with our data? Well, with a bit of hindsight, we can go back to April 2020 and see people warning. So let's have a look at what was going on in the general chaos and confusion. So apparently at the start of the coronavirus outbreak, practices were told that they play a key role in supporting patients most at risk from COVID-19 and people who were expected to shield themselves. However, the process for identifying these patients was fraught with confusion. Around 900,000 patients were initially identified from hospital data and automatically sent a text or a letter advising them to shield. Uh, but what happened was that GPs were also sent guidance and essentially there was conflict between the two. And that ended up where the GPs were given the Easter weekend to make corrections to the data stream, which they clearly couldn't do. So they had to protest back to the NHS. And I've left, um, I've left um, the lady's photograph on the screen because of course, we're talking about her responsibility, chaos going on here, but the GPs had to get an extension before they could correct the data. So we're seeing people now saying, well, what's going on with my data? But if we go back to that article in April, we can actually see the root of the story, utter chaos inside the NHS, where not even the GP surgeries knew what the, what the NHS plan was, but we should trust them. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, would you? I, I don't think I wouldn't. Well, let's follow it through. Um, this is um, an article uh, published here on the 25th of October 2020, but it's the first time we've come across it. Again, thank you very much to a UK column uh, viewer. So what have we got? Um, we've got the NHS responding to an article that appeared in the Sunday Times. And I'm really going to encourage people to go to the NHS news site and pick up this report and read it for themselves uh, because a very pious NHS is saying, oh, that nasty Times newspaper uh, printed a completely untrue account of how the NHS has been uh, um, coping with things. Uh, what did the uh, Times print? Well, it was this article, elderly were abandoned to COVID, we must see no repeat. It's a pretty measured article, um, but this is a, probably a key statement if we bring it in on screen. Many elderly patients died from the coronavirus after they were not prioritized for treatment. And I think that uh, there's been a wealth of other uh, evidence which has supported that. Um, so, and of course, um, elderly people in care and residential homes who were locked in and then COVID patients were sent to those facilities died in their tens of thousands uh, but the MP uh, sorry but the NHS coming back and rebutting this story and uh, let's take you through some of the statements that the NHS put forward to rebut the article that the Times had put out we'll have a bit of discussion about this in a second part so I've again put it over the face of uh, Dr. Nikki Canali because she's ultimately responsible. But uh, here's the first statement. Throughout the first wave of COVID-19, the NHS did not run out of critical care capacity, which remained available to everybody who would benefit from it. But haven't we just seen the whole country running around because uh, we've been told that the NHS absolutely at breaking point, they couldn't cope with anything. And that was the whole basis for, for by the prime minister for locking down the country initially was to take the strain off the NHS yeah. so we could regroup just three weeks, three weeks so the, the NHS isn't overwhelmed. Protect the NHS. Protect the NHS, get on the streets, get clapping for the NHS because the NHS couldn't cope. But uh, we got a rebuttal statement here by Dr. Alison uh, Pritard, Dean of the Faculty of Intensive Care. And... Um, Oh, so, sorry, we've jumped to slide, I think. So the pre, wait a minute, let me go back. So um, I may have, um, sorry, let me come back here a second. 
apologize for that. So, so we did not run out of critical care and um, she's pretty confident that's the case, but the whole message came across that uh, basically the NHS was at breakdown. And if I come over to here, the Sunday Times assertions are simply not borne out with the facts. It was older patients who disproportionately received NHS care. Over two thirds of our COVID-19 inpatients were aged over 65. So this one is interesting because, okay, if they looked after the patients that were in hospital, that's one thing, but we know that they were also following a policy to ship uh, patients out of hospitals into the care homes where they died. Mm -hmm. So as you look at these uh, comments from inside the NHS, you get the impression that people inside the NHS had no idea what was actually going on at the time. Mm -hmm. that's, that's obvious. And by the way, there's a real push, Brian, in America as well, because New York State was the epicenter yeah. of their sort of care home disaster uh, that accounted for a large portion, I think up to 33% of the yeah. total, quote, COVID deaths in America are all from that sort of situation in New York. And, and out of those were care homes. And the media is now trying to basically undo it, saying, oh, it really wasn't uh, a care home disaster. Yeah. And Governor Cuomo wasn't responsible. And uh, it wasn't as bad as, it, you know, it wasn't what people thought. So they're, they're basically trying to rewrite the narrative. Uh, afterwards, because that that is where the majority of the sort of quote yeah. COVID deaths are, and the the reason they want to read undo this narrative, Brian, is because they don't want people to be asking the question of why are we going through all of these crazy mitigation measures, rules, and regulations. When it was never done before, and it doesn't affect the general population. There's no threat, public health threat, to the general population. Okay, well, we just uh, add this comment as well. Um, this is another one here by Professor Stephen Powis, NHS National Medical Director. The NHS repeatedly instructed staff that no patient who could benefit from treatment should be denied, uh, should be denied it. And thanks to people following government guidance, even at the heart of the pandemic, there was no shortage of ventilators and, and intensive care. So there was never any shortage. Mm. But thanks to people following government guidance. What guidance is he talking about? Is he talking for the NHS or is he talking for the public? That's not, that's not clear. But again, we've got the message that there wasn't a problem. Um, uh, we want to remind patients that we're here for them and they should not hesitate to seek urgent and emergency care uh, if they need it. As, as one of the serious concerns of the first wave was patients staying away through fear. Well, that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Because we know that it was basically the government's own uh, program to create the fear. And that was done by the government's behavioral insights team in collaboration with the spy B cell, the psychological cell of SAGE. So the government ran a program to create fear. And then the people in the NHS who are completely unaware of this say, oh, well, the problem is people have stayed away because they got fearful. Yeah, and they're still running that that project for yeah. today. They've only sort of moved it and with different themes and uh, within the quote tiers system. But we'll yeah. talk about that. In so a this is an attack. This is an attack by the government on the population of UK, and they're using the NHS as a weapon. And of course, the many good people inside the NHS don't see what's going on. Uh, but uh, the good news is there's been an apology. So Dr. Nikki Kanani did apologize. I'm very happy to apologize. It's been really frustrating and I'm sorry about that. Uh, I hope that we can get the processes better. My apologies for what it's worth. So there we are, a um, few thousand people, a few tens of thousands of elderly people died. It was a bit frustrating, bit of a nuisance. I've apologized for what that's worth. And adhering to the new rules of, of government, Brian, no one gets sacked. No. That's, that's the new rules of, of government. Because there would have been lessons to have been learned by the government and the NHS, mm. move on, nothing to see, nobody's brought to book. That's right. Well, that... perhaps we can push that people are brought to book. Tony, Tony Blair was the godfather of that policy, <laughs> unsackability. So, uh, but that brings what... us on to Project Fear, Brian. Uh, Project Fear... Uh, so we'll take a look at uh, here. We have, uh, well, you probably remember remember this album from the 80s, Tears for Fears. I have to thank uh, hat tip to David Scott. 
to this uh, uh, ditty from Monday, but Tears for Fears, and you can see there's uh, Boris and uh, Matt Hancock in their 80s mullets, Songs from the Big Scare. Uh, so that's the, uh, the theme of this whole program, and it's just absolutely unbelievable, uh, the tear system. This is the new rat's maze that's been designed uh, by the government uh, that are having various regions, cities, and people run through, uh, even down to the household level trying to navigate the tiers system. Uh, it's, yeah. it's quite, it's quite, a, uh, it's quite a, a Hunger Games. Uh. It's a pretty unpleasant photograph, that actually, or image <laughs> yeah. that we'll move, we'll move on we'll from. We'll throw that. that on screen for a minute so people can take a screenshot of that. Tears for fears there. But so, so the dear leader uh, graced the podium uh, to give a, a message to the country uh, in the last 24 hours. So we'll, what we're going to do is we're going to play this Boris Johnson video, but I'm going to stop intermittently and if, if I think we're gonna have to give a comment on something uh, we'll stop and we'll comment and then we'll continue right uh, so let's let's start off and listen to what he has to say first and we'll see how long it takes for us to interrupt uh, Boris uh, the Prime Minister here but uh, yeah go ahead and uh, roll this clip the truth is that uh, there we're gonna have to stop it right there the truth is <laughs> because what he's about to say is anything but the truth so he's really set himself up yeah. for the fall there. Sorry to, to you cut. You caught me on that one. Okay. Cut that off that quick. But uh, we'll go ahead and let, let, let's listen to what else he has to say. The truth is that at least one in three people uh, with COVID have no symptoms at all and may be spreading it, spreading the disease without even knowing that they've got it. The okay, so there's a lie right there. He's talking about uh, one in three people are spreading COVID because they're asymptomatic uh, spreaders, Brian. And that's just simply not true. And uh, if you look at the actual data, look at the science right now, Brian, uh, here's, a, here's a study that's just come out. This is from Nature. Uh, this is, I believe this is uh, uh, peer reviewed here. Uh, but this is a study that's come out of uh, China, actually, uh, from Wuhan itself. And what they found is here is the... Uh, here is the asymptomatic spread is a myth, essentially. Here, here's the conclusion, Brian. No new symptomatic cases of the 300 asymptomatic cases, which were identified and tracked 24 yeah. hours a day for about two weeks or three weeks, okay? They even attract them longer than the incubation period. And guess what? Zero asymptomatic spreaders. So that's the cutting edge of science right now on this, uh, Brian. So, uh, and again, this is Boris Johnson's come right out of the gates with something, the government's whole case is hanging on this myth of asymptomatic spreaders. Lockdown, uh, testing, yeah. uh, uh, social distancing, masks, vaccines, everything hinges on two things, the asymptomatic spreader and the, uh, the, PC, the, val the validity of the PCR test. Yeah. And those two things are a complete sham. And so all of these policies that are being based on asymptomatic spreaders and PCR tests are pretty much null and void in terms of the real world. But as we know, the government's not operating yeah. in the real world. But uh, let's, let's listen to what Boris has to say here again. The only way to identify them and protect everyone is through mass testing. And Liverpool shows what can be achieved. So there's, there's, that's a lie right well, there. Well, what has been achieved? We've no idea <laughs> yeah. what's been achieved. Well, he, he's saying that what the big achievement is they've come down a tier, okay? That uh, mass testing uh, does not identify uh, active cases or infections. And this is, if you, if you go to the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, there is tons of literature uh, here, Brian, on this. This is from Oxford uh, Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. COVID cases in England aren't rising. Here's why. They're talking about, Brian, that the PCR test is not fit for purpose. And here's the Portuguese government. A court has ruled here the PCR tests are unreliable and quarantines are unlawful because they're based on a fraudulent PCR test. It is not a diagnostic medical tool. It can't be used for diagnostics. It's not a medical yeah. diagnostic. All it can do is tell you the presence of genetic fragments in your system, which could be old viruses, old yeah, the fragments. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. again, sorry to um, poke and I'll just add, and of course, none of this, none of it reported on the BBC. 
No, they're so, not. They're not so challenging. Anything. They're not challenging at all. They're not putting up any other scientific opinion. It, it's simply nothing or the government's own line. And the Guardian's doing the same. Yeah. And the Independent's doing the same. They're like Pravda UK. This is like Soviet Pravda 2020 in the UK. They're just repeating and announcing what the government's saying. Yeah. No challenging any of the basis for any of their claims for any of these policies. So, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, no, take us through. I'm watching the clock. At <laughs> so, the so Boris, let's go back to Boris real quick. In, in, in Liverpool, in the space of two and a half weeks, uh, over 240,000 tests have been conducted. And together with the effect of the national restrictions, this has helped to reduce the number of cases in Liverpool city region by more than two thirds. So that's, that's a lie right there. He's, he's claiming that uh, all of the tests that have been done in Liverpool have reduced the cases. I, I don't understand yeah. uh, what he's talking about. How can doing random tests of healthy people reduce the COVID cases in the region? I mean, it's just too confusing. But uh, what are these claims well, based on? We, we never get the factual um, information anyway, but you do get the rhetoric. Notice he's talking about the city, uh, city regions. This is not part of UK culture. Uh, this is the new political agenda. Mm -hmm. Keep on going because we're okay. clocks ticking sure. at the moment. Sure, no, continue, Boris. Having previously been in Tier 3, Liverpool City Region and Warrington will now be in Tier 2. This is a success story which we want other parts of the country to replicate. So we'll work with local government, with public health leaders and our fantastic, uh, fantastic armed forces to offer community testing to tier three areas as quickly as possible, opening the way for them to follow Liverpool's example. Now, testing on this scale is untried, but in due course, if it works, where people test negative, it may also be possible for families and communities to be released from certain restrictions, even if their home area stays in, in tier three. So, 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 so families can be given a freedom pass even if they're within a tier three area, if they somehow fall, test negative. Well, we've got to get the test. We're getting people to get the test. When you get the test, you may be allowed to do something. When you get the health passport, you may be allowed to fly. It's uh, crazy. Well, it's not crazy. It's orchestrated. <laughs> it's thought through. They know exactly what they're doing. So just, this, just car we'll carry on yeah. real quick. Uh, we'll see what else he has to say. The allocation of tiers will be reviewed every 14 days, starting on the 16th of December. So your tier is not your destiny. Every area has the means of escape. And I have no doubt that together we can get through this winter, suppress the virus until vaccines come to our aid and then reclaim, reclaim our lives and all the things that we love. Well, so we can, we can only escape into a normal life if we have the vaccine. That, that was the follow of that, Absolutely, that line yeah. that he's giving. That's what he's saying. Right. So, <laughs> so we know what's coming if people allow this mad regime to continue. Yeah, so, so you're, right. pri you're a prisoner. The subtext is you're a prisoner, but you can escape if you follow all of our rules, which change every day yeah. uh, in our tier, new tier systems. And when a vaccine comes, you can get back to normal life and the things you love doing. But, you know, as we'll point out in a minute, uh, Brian, the vaccine, according to the manufacturers, does not give immunity to COVID-19. All it does is reduce the symptoms. That's according to the vaccine manufacturers themselves. themselves. Yeah. So what in the world are we talking about here? So, and, and again, that this is where this conversation leads here. Uh, this was a, a question posited on Twitter here uh, to Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet magazine. It says, how, how long will we need to live with uh, NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, do you think? And this was the answer to, uh, to, to this person. This is Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. He's saying, Roy Anderson, Imperial, the best infectious disease epidemiologist I know, this week said it will take two to three years to mop up residual virus through vaccinations. Mop up. So the goal is set 60 to 70% of the population immunity by Easter, 
then continued vaccine vigilance until we achieve zero COVID. Yeah. And so just to take a look, this is, this is who the person is. Uh, there's Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. There's the publication there. That's regarded as the kind of gold standard, if you will, yeah. uh, for, for life sciences. Um, but the GPs are saying, well, you've got to keep taking the vaccines, essentially, because viruses are mutating and changing. So you, you've got to keep taking it. But he's saying something different. Well, I don't understand because he's saying that vaccines are going to provide immunity. That's not true. That's the editor of The Lancet. He's pushing corporate science fiction, it looks like. That is, there's no basis in science at all there. And that's quite quite shocking. Well, we, we, we have a slide in a minute from the British Medical Journal, which says exactly that. We've shown it before, but we'll pop it up again. So just, just, just to tell you what's in the news here, I mean, there's all sorts of problems here. This is AstraZeneca admitting uh, that they've got difficulty and how they're uh, you know, putting their vaccine together. A lot of this stuff has been brushed under the rug, Brian, because they've been in a rush, a race against time to save the world from COVID. Does the world need saving from COVID? No one's asking that question here. And again, AstraZeneca uh, just recently revealing that the dosing, <laughs> they've been misdosing their vaccines uh, during the coronavirus trials, which really throws the whole thing out the window. Are they going to be held to account? Well, no, because they, you know, they've got immunity. <laughs> and, they, and, they haven't got to worry about anything because the government said, well, you know, if you make mistakes, that's just unfortunate and carry on because uh, nobody can actually you know, deal with you, take you to court. Because it's an emergency. And then yeah. this is who's pushing Pfizer right now, again, the World Economic Forum, promoting the Pfizer vaccine here. I think it doesn't take a genius to put two and two together there. And just to round that off, this is in Reuters. They pulled this article because of this quote. If you go to look for this article on Google, it will come up blank. I found it on another uh, syndication. And they're basically saying here, Pfizer's share prices, 14.2% higher and so forth, and uh, BioNTech stock was up nearly 23%. And this is the kicker. This is why Reuters, I think, has scrubbed this article. Let's just hope that the vaccine deniers won't get in the way. But 2021 just got a lot brighter, says yeah. Neil Wilson, chief market analyst for markets.com. Yeah. So vaccine deniers could get in the way of profits for the vaccine companies, according to all these top market analysts. Yeah. They're saying this publicly. Well, of course, everything's about money. They're going to make money out of it. So this is this is an obvious statement. They're just trying to push that to one side and not show the public too much that it's about profits. Incredibly, and incredibly yeah. reckless. Uh, so and, and I want to point to this as well. Some someone sent me this article here. This was from uh, September, I believe, the Daily Mail asking, could washing your nose with iodine protect you from COVID-19? Swabbing the virus with antiseptics for 15 seconds completely kills it in a lab study. They're talking about iodine, uh, Brian, here. And there's some basis in this. If you look at this peer-reviewed study here, I think it's peer-reviewed, but uh, this was up on Nature as well. And they're calling it uh, POV iodine, gargle and mouthwash. And basically, this was the, uh, the, the oh, sorry, sorry, we go back one. Uh, this was the conclusion of Let's that. The conclusion of that, Brian, uh, is that, in, in look at the, uh, the results of Greece and places like this. You know, they use a product here. I did some research. This is called Betadine. This is iodine mouthwash. Right. It's not available in the UK uh, for whatever reason, because uh, they say it's not safe. But this is, according to these uh, studies in the lab, that kills COVID, according to the right. study. This type of, uh, of uh, POV iodine. So again, and this is like iodine, what most yeah, people, we're not plugging yeah. any of this. We're not making any claims. We're just basically saying what the scientific literature, which we just showed you, is basically saying. Right. So that's over the counter in Greece. I got this from Greece. Okay. It's called betadine. So this is just, I, I find this absolutely fascinating, but you'd think that the media would be all over something well, no, like this. Well, because the media's <laughs> got to stay on the line. But I mentioned this uh, when you were talking earlier. Let's put it up, because this was the Brit British Medical Journal. And the article is when good science is suppressed by the medical political complex, people die. Science is being suppressed for political and financial gain, which is exactly what you've, you've demonstrated there. But isn't it fascinating that we've got another key medical journal, which is actually 
uh, coming out with this information. Now, moving on with an eye on the clock, um, I'm going to say once again, well done to the UK Golem viewers, because uh, what have we got here? We've got a viewer taking action. I've taken to sending my MP every few days an email, but I might make it a daily thing when I have stamps. I've been sending a hard copy document and that might escalate to one a day. I'm tending to do the emails by topic or just daily news and listing, say three links per subject, as then it's not too much for them to process. They tend to reply to the actual letters. So here's somebody saying, well, we're taking the information and pushing it out, and I'm actually starting to see a response from the MP. So maybe there's a, a lesson uh, for us there. Um, but uh, this article caught my attention um, and uh, I'm putting it up on screen. I know the print's very small, but it means you can have a look at it later. Uh, what is it saying? Freedom of information disclosures to open democracy show the new number 10 health and social care task force reports to a steering group chaired by Manira Mirza, the influential head of Boris Johnson's policy unit, and then it meant weekly. But what the article is pointing out is these are secret meetings and nobody knows what is actually being discussed, although they are discussing the future of the NHS. And the lady in question there, Nira, if you have a look at her background, she's a communist. Oh. Now, is that, uh, is that influencing what's happening with the NHS? We don't know, but if the meetings are secret, we're never going to know. And uh, more political agenda, but on a different subject. Let's have a look at this one. A response uh, from a viewer says that apparently the orange epaulets, which we mentioned on police, signifies that the officer is there for the purpose of evidence gathering. So uh, that's what we're being told. If there's anybody who can corroborate that, that would be um, very welcome. But the second part of this email was this. The Welsh police are looking into multicoloured epaulets to show their LGBT political correctness. And here we are, Patrick, back on the same subject of what is being done behind the scenes in order to, to impact on society. This is political war um, which is being uh, carried out. Here was uh, part of the original tweet from South Wales Police. Finally, we're giving our officers and staff the ability to show their support by wearing trans epaulets and LGBT plus, oh. uh, plus thin blue line patches on their uniforms. Now, interestingly, where was this reported? Well, don't expect to see this on uh, BBC. We'll c continue to hammer them. So um, the Russia Today had reported this, and there was a very, very interesting quote by this gentleman, Kevin Hurley, former head of counter-terrorism at the City of London Police. He tweeted back to that tweet that we've just shown you, saying it was appalling misjudgment. But then he said this, it's not for serving police officers to visibly display support for any political or special interest group. They must be apolitical. So he's hitting it right on the money that, of course, if you have officers openly declaring that they are supporting LGBT, then they are automatically going to be biased when they meet somebody else because they've declared what their, their preference is. That's literally the weaponization of, of, the, of identity politics. Yeah, we're into intersectionality again. Yeah. This is identity politics, and we're seeing it affect the police. So the police can play around with their epaulets, um, but when it comes to uh, more important things, you can see them for suppressing demonstrators complaining about lockdown. This was part of a video where some people were just filming on the green outside Westminster. Um, I captioned it more police than public because it seemed that way. But what are the police doing in the background? Uh, well, they're playing around with their epaulets in a political way. So we promised uh, to move on to this uh, planning and Plymouth City Council. Quite a substantial article in the Daily Mail over the last couple of days, and it's to do with Plymouth City Council trying to rename uh, a, a, a place, and uh, they're trying to remove um, uh, back basically Sir John Hawkins from this particular square, and they want to replace it with the name of Jack Leslie, who was a black footballer that played for Plymouth Argyle. This is now 
in the realms of the court so we can only really report on what the daily mail has said but the gentleman lower right danny bamping has been taking this one through the courts why are we so interested in this case well the daily mail would have us believe this is all to do with racism but actually there's something rather different let's have a look at the key components the decision to replace the name of an uh, uh, of an elizabethan slave trader on the square behind beside the city magistrates court followed the black lives matter protests in the wake of the death of george floyd in police custody in the united states in may so that's the first key statement this is the second one in june the council leader tudor evans said that the council stood in solidarity with the black lives matter movement and it had already started the process of renaming sir john hawkins square on the barbican and mr bamping um, who they say once appeared on dragon's den argued the decision breached national guidelines as it was racist because it was based on the color of the player's skin in response to the black lives matter movement and so this case is very deep and has very very important implications because mr bamping's also identified that essentially uh, he he is putting forward that the council has breached the law in trying to completely change the name of the um of that square when he says what the law states is that you can only amend a name you could take the sir off the front and call it hawkins square mm -hmm. but you can't completely rename it so what he's really saying is that the council are breaking the law for a political agenda and what is the agenda at the back of it it's black lives matter so uh, we're gonna have to end here but so, so basically sorry right, let okay, me just pop okay. this on sorry pat let's just pop this on screen we've got intersectionality in uk politics i'll give you i'll give you a response to this uh, pat as we end but just to show our viewers um so we've got the center for feminist foreign policy a very important body people should be aware of so led by the founding director marissa conway the discussion started with the question what does an intersectional policy look like and the reply uh, from a lady from the university of cambridge uh, she believes that intersectional policy should break the mold she said emotive words like dignity and respect are needed to put across the experiences uh, but we've got an, another lady, uh, Shasta Aziz, journalist, author, broadcaster and founder of the Every, Everyday Bigotry Project, an intersectional feminist foreign policy. You're with me so far? Yes. Uh, she stressed the importance of language. She says powerful language is needed in order to uh, uh, frame the issues correctly. So here we've got a body largely out of sight of the public, but what are they doing? they are campaigning and using and twisting language in order to get their own policy across i'll let you reply to that and then i'll show one more slide before sure. we end there's a lot to unpack there but let, I me, know, we'll do let me just first speak to uh, uh danny bamping's uh, campaign so what he's really saying brian is there's a due process there's a public forum there's quorum that could needs to be had within the community to go through whatever that process is correct to to change the, the street names and they've bypassed this for political expediency yeah. in this case uh favoring the black lives matter movement is yeah. basically what he's saying isn't yes it? that's exactly and, what he's and saying. isn't that what they've done the same thing on the Mountbatten breakwater with the the art exhibition uh to basically rewrite thanksgiving history they bypassed due process yes. to put that up so we're seeing a pattern here, and it has to do with culture wars yeah this is clearly culture wars I might add that there was no there is no evidence presented in the uh, George Floyd uh, investigation with regards to the officer Derek Chauvin no racial motivation no rate not a racially motivated crime uh, so that's that's what that's what yeah. they're saying that's what the courts and the police are saying in America so the whole George Floyd thing wasn't uh, racially motivated and if you want to get into the argument of well too many black people unarmed black people are killed in america you can get into that argument and you'll find that there's many more unfortunately white yeah. unarmed killed 
uh, in America, if you look at the statistics from, from many, many years going back now. So, I mean, this whole thing that that was a racial event was really, I think, a construct. And Black Lives Matter, the organization, I mean, everybody can get on board with the idea of Black Lives Matter, of course. Black Lives Matter. If but it's the, an open debate, by all means. But but the yeah. organization is a proto-Marxist organization. Okay. It's in their literature. So they are not uh, a, a neutral, happy, clappy no. uh, community organization. They've got they, an agenda. They have a very specific uh, agenda. Well, we've got to end here. So let's just put the last bit of this uh, uh, slide on screen. Um, how, how do we do this, they say? Well, Lucy Wake of Amnesty International believes participation. We can join a political party, support others to rise. We can become MPs. And you've got a lady from Médecins Sans Frontières there. Well, we could ask some questions about that organisation. But essentially, these are activists. They are, as you say, getting into the grain. But this bit I really enjoyed. The people targeted by a specific policy are hardly ever consulted about its potential impact. She's criticizing governments there. The people targeted by the government specific policy are hardly ever consulted about its potential impact. We need to penetrate political systems built to maintain hierarchies and reinforce power dynamics. Mm -hmm. So she says, well, the problem is that the governments are introducing policy, but they don't talk to people. But we're going to introduce our policy without talking to the people. And, and they've just got to suck it up. And Amnesty International ran a campaign with NATO in 2012 during the NATO conference in, in Chicago saying, let's keep the progress going with pictures of Afghan yeah. women on bus stops saying yeah. that that was, you know, that was the first feminist war. So they're using feminism, third wave feminism, to drive NATO's war effort in Afghanistan. You can go ahead and look at the uh, yeah. billboard campaign. That's publicly available. Amnesty International was behind that yeah. in America. Okay, now we must end, but uh, I think it's appropriate to end on this uh, particular email into the UK uh, uh, column, uh, which I absolutely love. Uh, let's see whether this one works. It's on mandatory state propaganda. The fusion doctrine was mentioned on UK column today. It reminded me of what our daughter said when she returned from college last Wednesday. The teacher played a video about the threat of online radicalization. She said to the teacher, this is propaganda. The teacher asked, what makes you say that? She replied, um, this is a maths lesson. The teacher explained how she had to play the video. It was mandatory. Yes, the girl said, mandatory propaganda. I think we need a lot of young people like that to uh, stand up and be counted and challenge the system. So there, we, is, there is some hope there. There is some hope. We'll end there. Thanks very much for joining us today. Big thank you to Mike Robinson, who's been uh, working behind the scenes to allow this to happen. A little bit of a change around uh, in order to, uh, well, just change things and uh, see whether we could... Uh, uh, get some slightly different material in uh, UK column trying to do the job unlike the BBC uh, so let us know what you think and uh, UK column will be back at the same time on Monday thanks for joining us bye bye